Psalm 79, um, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps, the dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and the kingdoms that do not call your name on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and have laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, do not rem uh, remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins, for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom. Their reproach with, with which they have reproached you, O Lord, so we, your people, and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. Kind of a mournful psalm there. Um, let's see here. Our sermon today is from uh, Exodus 17. It's verses 8 through 16. It's entitled, Yehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. Verse 17, uh, chapter 17, starting in the 8th verse. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he, when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out this rem the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built, an, Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord is sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The 7th of September was a really tough day for me. It was the day that I spent typing this particular sermon. There are a lot of names and places in these few verses, and none of them are without significance. What the account pictures was eluding me, though, and I was more caught up in the mechanical aspects of the passage and less in what it was picturing. You know, I'm trying to get the Hebrew and understand what's going on and not worrying about the pictures as much. But God is good, and he is good all the time. I went to one commentary on this passage outside of my regular sources of study, and the line of reasoning that they gave was sufficient to direct me to an overall picture of what was being presented. And from there, the mechanical details fit into beautiful pictures of Jesus Christ. You're going to see that every single word in this 
set of verses points to Christ. Everything. How the Lord can pack so much into just nine verses is simply beyond me. And I fear that I've just touched on the magnificence of them. There are surely patterns in the letters. You've got numerical and pictorial patterns there. There are surely patterns in the structure of the verses as well. But those are left to be discovered by another. I'm just pleased to have made it through the 7th of September without a broken brain vessel. Our text verse for today comes from Malachi 3. It is verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day when I make them my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Malachi writes about a book of remembrance. The idea of writing something in a book is to accomplish exactly that, remembrance. God has given us a wondrous book of remembrance. We call it the Holy Bible. The very germ of that book is found in today's passage. Since then, it has become a book of history, of love, of doctrine, and of looking into the very heart and mind of God. Let us ever cherish this marvelous book which he has blessed us with. So much wonder and so much beauty is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is war with Amalek. It's verses 8 through 13. Verse 8, now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. During the last sermon, which dealt with the water from the rock, the account began in Rephidim, which was mentioned in verse 1. After that, it seemed that the name of the place was changed by the end of the story to Massa and Meribah. But I noted that instead the name Rephidim was given because of the account, not changed during the account. The first verse of this account shows us that. Massa and Meribah are where the water flowed from, not where Israel is encamped. The name Rephidim gives the idea of rest and also of support. The people received their rest and their support from the waters, even if it was first contention and testing which occurred before they received the waters of Massa and Meribah. Now, all of a sudden, another story is introduced into this place, Rephidim, their place of rest and support. Amalek has shown up and fought with Israel. And this is actually explained later in Deuteronomy chapter 25. There in verse uh, 17 through 19, it says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This passage in Deuteronomy ties in rest from your enemies with the destruction of Amalek. In Exodus, the people were weary, implying that they had no rest. And it is at this time that Amalek attacked the stragglers. And yet, this is in Rephidim, a name which is a plural noun coming from the word Rephad, which means to spread, as in a bed. And so by implication, it means a place of rests or comforts. We're being given marvelous hints of why the story is included and how to interpret what the word is showing us. Next, the name Amalek needs to be explained. 
Amalek's birth is recorded in Genesis 36, verse 12. It says there, Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. Just a few verses later, he is noted as one of the chiefs of the tribes of Esau. And no mention of him has been made since then, and now he is reintroduced into the story. The name Amalek is derived from the word Am, which means people, and from the word Malak, which means to nip or wring off the head of a bird with, with or without severing it from the body. It's used only in Leviticus 1, 15, and 5, 8. That's where they do a certain ritual and they nip off the head of the bird. Thus, they are the people who wring off. They are those who are disconnected from the body and they strive to disconnect the body. The name is introduced here along with the account as a picture of something else. These brutal people would have noticed the Israelites traveling through Sinai and they would have eaten up all of the uh, pasturage of the, uh, you know, the dry and barren area as they're traveling through. And in a cowardly way of handling this problem, they nipped away at the weakest of the people and didn't directly attack the main body. Verse 9, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Suddenly, and without any other explanation concerning who he is, Joshua is introduced into the Bible. His name is actually Yehoshua, which comes from two separate words. The first is a shortened form of the divine name Yehovah, and the second comes from the root verb yasha, which means to save or to deliver. It is the same root verb which the name of Jesus or Yeshua is derived. Thus, the name should alert us that he is a type of Christ, the incarnate word of God. His name means Yah is salvation. And interestingly, in Hebrew, his name is the precise reversal of the name of the prophet Isaiah, which is salvation of the Lord. With no actual introduction other than the giving of his name, Joshua is instructed to go out and choose men. Moses leaves it up to him to decide who is best qualified to win the battle which is coming. It is up to him then who will defeat the foe Amalek. Next, Moses instructs him to go out to fight against Amalek. By instructing him to go out, it implies that the battle will be conducted outside of the camp of Israel. A picture is forming with the giving of just four names in only two verses, Amalek, Rephidim, Moses, and Joshua. It should be remembered that the passage of the parting of the Red Sea at that time, Josephus, Flavius Josephus, says that the weapons of the Egyptians washed up on the shore for Israel to collect. Now, that's not in the Bible, but that's a historical account, and that would explain why they are able to go out and conduct war, why they have weapons. Thus, they would have been prepared for the battle with the appropriate weapons for war. Numbers 13, verse 16 tells us that Joshua's name at this particular time is actually Hosea. In that verse, which is about a year later, it says that Moses changed his name from Hosea to Joshua. But the name Joshua is used retroactively now because he is given in type as a picture of Christ Jesus. As Adam Clark notes about him right here, both in the Septuagint, which means the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Greek Testament, which means the New Testament, which was written in Greek, he is called Jesus. The name signifies Savior, and he is allowed to have been a very expressive type of our blessed Lord. He fought with and conquered the enemies of his people, brought them into the promised land, and divided it by lot to them. 
The parallel between him and the savior of the world is too evident to require pointing out. And he points it out, which is one of those ironies about Adam Clark and how he writes. Anyway, we also know that Joshua is about 39 years old at this time because of what he says to the people in Joshua chapter 14. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Well, that was about a year after this account in Exodus 17, and so he is about 39 years old at this time. And it dawned on me this morning that that makes another picture, which I will not describe to you, but there are 39 books in the Old Testament which lead us to Jesus Christ. And he is being a, called a picture of this in this passage. And so I may add this into my sermon notes when I put it online, you know, refine those. But anyway, I want you to keep that in your memory, is that that actually is another picture of Christ, those 39 years. But it took me all that studying to go up and find a date of Joshua's older age and then be able to subtract it from this current age here. So, anyway, just so you know that, verse 9 continues. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. It's an interesting set of words here for us to contemplate. Tomorrow is certainly chosen for the people to be rested in preparation for battle. At the place of rests, which is Rephidim, the people will be rested. On the next day, Moses says that he will stand on top of the hill with the rod in his hand. There's a definite article in front of the word hill, and so a particular hill is meant, though not named. There he will stand as if he is a banner for the people to see, and in his hand will be the rod. However, the Hebrew does not say the rod of God. It's a very unfortunate translation. It says, Umate ha Elohim beyadi, and with the rod of the God in my hand, there is a definite article in front of the word God. This is the first time that it has been called the rod of the God since Exodus 4, verse 20, which was 38 sermons ago when Moses set out towards Egypt after receiving his commission. The article is given here to highlight the naming of the altar, which we're going to see in verse 15. And so now we have five principles to consider. Amalek, Rephidim, Moses, Joshua, and the rod of the God. Verse 10, so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. Without any note of timidity or reticence, the Bible records that Joshua faithfully executed his order from Moses and engaged Amalek in battle. It has to be remembered that just a short time earlier, he and the Israelites with him were slaves in Egypt. The implication then is that it, they had never been in battle before and that they had no time to train for battle. And yet... They went out in full confidence that they would be honorable representatives of Israel in fighting the Lord's battle. Verse 10 continues, And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now another person is introduced, Hur. His name has never been mentioned before, and yet he is named as if he is a well-known figure. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 2, he is the great-great-grandson of Judah. At this time, we know that Moses is 80, and Aaron is 83 years of age. Hur is said to be the grandfather of Bezalel, who will be the great artisan in the construction of the tabernacle. And so it is certain that he is, like Moses and Aaron, an old man. And because they were not the right age to lead in battle, they instead will act as intercessors to the Lord while Joshua fights with the enemy. Josephus says that Hur is the husband of Miriam, and thus he would be the brother-in-law of Moses and Aaron. 
Egyptians. Not in the Bible, though. I just want you to know that. Later in Exodus 24, 14, Moses will leave this guy, Hur, as the joint ruler of the Israelites, along with Aaron, when he ascends Mount Sinai to receive the law. His name comes from the word Hur, which means white. Verse 11, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. This is a very curious verse to consider. Was it because there was a link between the failing strength of Moses and that of Israel? Was it because Israel gained confidence at the sight of the raised staff just as a soldier gains confidence at the raising of the flag? Like on Iwo Jima, they saw the flag and they all the people marshaled and got more confidence. Or was it that the Lord stopped helping the people because Moses allowed the rod of the God, which represented his power, to falter? Each has to be considered because the verse is explicit about what has occurred. There is a direct link between Moses' body movements and the direction of the battle. Because there is, there must be a reason why we are told this. The verb for held up is rum. It means to exalt or to be high or to lift up. The verb for let down is nuach. The word simply means to rest. Matthew Poole seems to rightly evaluate what is happening here with these words. Amalek prevailed, so God so dispensing his favor that the honor of the day and victory might be wholly ascribed to the rod and the power of God, not to Israel. Verse 12, but Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Moses' strength simply failed him. Anyone who has tried to hold up a two-pound weight for even a very short time, just a couple of minutes, will tell you that it gets very heavy very quickly. It's unnatural to hold one's hands up for a long time as well. It is even more so when raising them while holding something. Compounding that, Moses was standing. In his own strength, he could not endure for very long under these conditions. And so Aaron and Hur place a stone under him on which he could sit. They had seen the connection between the body movements of Moses and the direction of the battle, and they knew they needed to do something. With Moses now relying on the stone and not on his own strength to stand, he would have more energy than by standing. It should be noted that Aaron and Hur didn't trade places with Moses. If they had taken turns, each one with the rod, they could have continued on all day long. But only Moses holds the rod. It is implicit then that only Moses could hold the rod and come out with the proper results. And so in order to ensure that those results would be favorable, they took another course of action. Verse 12 continues. And I want you to know, everything that we're talking about right now, I'm going to explain in every detail that pictures to Jesus Christ. Every single detail. Verse 12 going on, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. The responsibility for the holding of the rod of God belonged to Moses alone, but this didn't preclude Aaron and Hur from supporting Moses' arms throughout the day. And so they did. With their assistance, it says that his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. The word for steady here is emuna. It means faithfulness. This is the first time that it's used in the Bible, and outside of this time, it is always used in a moral sense. It is such an important word that I want to read you its entire description from the Haw Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. This is a little long, but I want you to understand the meaning of this word because nobody dwells on this word. I didn't read any commentary on this word at all in any 
of the resources that I look at. And yet this word right here is as important to this account as anything else that we're going to talk about today. Here are their analysis of this word. There are at least 10 distinct categories in which this noun is used in Scripture. In its first occurrence in Scripture, it expresses the sense of steady, firm hands, a very basic idea. That's what we're looking at here. From this mundane sense, and I got to tell you what, there's nothing mundane about this at all. But from this mundane sense, Scripture moves almost entirely to a use of the word in connection with God or those related to God. And by the time we get done with this, you're going to see how they miss this. All they are is a, a group of people that evaluates words, individual words. You're going to see how clearly they miss the significance of this word, Amuna. All right, uh, going on. Basically, the term applies to God himself. Well, guess what this pictures? We've seen this again and again so far in these accounts. So they miss that as well. Um, Deuteronomy 32.4, they cite, to express his total dependability. It is frequently listed among the attributes of God. It describes his works and his words. Imuna is also used to refer to those whose lives God establishes. He expects to see faithfulness in them. Indeed, such faithfulness or a life of faith is characteristic of those justified in God's sight. And they cite Habakkuk 2.4. God's word of truth establishes man's way of truth or faithfulness. I'm going to read that again because this is the key to the entire story right here. God's word of truth. What is he speaking of? The word of God, the Holy Bible. God's word of truth establishes man's way of truth or faithfulness. From this, we can also see the concept of a duty entrusted to a believer, which becomes his trust or office. Everything they said in analyzing this word right here will point to something we're going to see in this sermon. In the use of this special word, the holding of the rod by Moses and the supporting of Moses' hands by Aaron and Hur are being used to show us a moral lesson as much as anything else. To this, there can be no doubt. All translations that I read, every single one of them uses the word steady here. But because of the use of imuna, we are certainly being told that his hand remained faithfully steady throughout the long day of battle. Thus, the word here is being used in contrast to the previous word heavy. Where his hands were first weighted down and burdened, they now remain faithful. Verse 13, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Joshua was commissioned to lead the battle as the commander of the Lord's people. Because of this, the verse gives the credit to Joshua for defeating Amalek. However, from the previous verses, there can be no other conclusion than that the victory belongs to the Lord. When the rod was lifted, Joshua prevailed, and when it was rested, Amalek prevailed. Therefore, though the physical battle was won in a physical sense by Joshua, the physical is tied directly to the power of God. Without his hand upon them, there could be no victory. As it was, though, Amalek and his people were defeated. As a fun squiggle for your brain, it says that they were defeated with the edge of the sword. In Hebrew, it says, lepi charev, with the mouth of the sword. The imagery in Hebrew is absolutely beautiful. The sword is considered a devouring instrument. Its edge is a mouth which, which consumes its enemies' souls. The enemies of the Lord's people come to harass and destroy. They come after the weak and the weary without a care. But the Lord will defend them. Great weapons he will employ. Don't have fear, good Christians. For you, the Lord is there. He is the rod lifted high, the power of God. He is the stone of support as a place of rest. 
His gospel of peace is nigh, so have your feet shod. The enemy is around, so in your armor be dressed. By his power you can ward off all foes. In his strength the devil stands no chance. Though he comes at you with mighty blows, fix your feet firmly in the battle, a warrior's stance. Our second thought today is the Lord is my banner. It's verses 14 through 16. Verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book. It cannot go without note that this is the first time in Scripture that the Lord has directed anyone to write something down, and specifically in a book. This verse, then, is the true germ of what we now call the Holy Bible. It is not the first time that the word book has been used. That belongs to Genesis 5, verse 1. But the concept of writing something at the direction of the Lord begins right here. Further, there is an article in front of the word book. It is not a book, but the book. Thus, versions such as the King James, which say a book, are in error, and they're in gross error. Specificity is given in order to demonstrate that this book has a precise purpose. In this case, it is as a memorial. The book itself is for the memorial. What seems like hair splitting is not. It is precise wording so that we can learn the intent of what is being said. Verse 14 continues, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. These words here presuppose the line of of succession in Israel. To recount the record in the hearing of Joshua implies that Joshua will someday be Moses' successor. It would then be incumbent upon Joshua to continue to relay the account to his own successor. This tradition was carried on even as far as Samuel, the last judge of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read this. Samuel also said to Saul, who was replacing him, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Verse 14 continues that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. The word for blot here is macha. So far, it's only been used in the account of Noah concerning the blotting out of all life during the flood. It means to abolish. The word for remembrance is the word zeker, which indicates memory. And so the basic intent is that the memory of Amalek would be completely erased. However, think about it. Because it's recorded in the Bible, the idea of mental remembrance of who Amalek is and what he did still lives on. This is not the intent of what's being said. Rather, it's speaking of the physical existence of Amalek. By blotting out his existence, there would be no memory of him in the sense of an inheritance. As a way of making this understandable, the word for blot here will next be used in Exodus chapter 32, along with the word book once again. There will be no inheritance of the good things to come for those who are blotted out. Thus, blotting out the memory of Amalek is, in essence, to destroy any future of or for Amalek. In looking back on why the Lord has determined this, a few reasons can be deduced. And I'm talking about the physical destruction of Amalek, not what it pictures. First, they were uh, the first to attack the redeemed of the Lord after their deliverance from Egypt. Secondly, they attacked the Lord's people without showing any regard or fear of the Lord. Third, they attacked those who were already tired and weary. 
and forth, being descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, they are of the same general family, and so they showed no fraternity to their own brothers. However, the sternness of the words is showing us that there is a greater picture that we're to see. The blotting out of Amalek is intended to show us a greater cleansing in the spiritual world which surrounds us. Verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. In the commemoration of the deliverance of Israel, through the victory of the battle, Moses built an altar. Although many scholars add in that Moses certainly sacrificed on this altar, there is no record of this. At other times, actions are taken in connection with the building of an altar, but in this account, none is. And so there is no reason to add in that he made a sacrifice. Instead, he merely names the altar Yehovah Nissi. The name explains the passage. It means the Lord is my banner. The altar is being used as a metonym, just as Washington stands for the U.S. government and just as Hollywood stands for the movie industry. The name Yehovah Nissi is intended as a metonym to stand for the rallying of the people to the Lord. The word Nissi means an ensign or a standard. It is something which is lifted up to which one's attention is to be directed. Thus, the altar has been placed to commemorate the rod of the God, which was elevated in the hands of Moses. This then explains why the definite article was used, Umate ha Elohim beyadi, and with the rod of the God in my hand. Verse 16, our final verse of the day. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Kiyad al kes ya. There are several possible translations for this verse. The word kes, which is translated as sworn in the New King James Version, is only used this once in the entire Bible. And because of that, various ideas have been put forth. Rather than sworn, it is probably better translated as throne. The reason why is that the word throne in Hebrew is kiseh. You can see here the, the similarity, kiseh and kes. In the Hebrew, the name Yehovah is shortened to Yah right after this word. And so it's probably a poetic contraction of both words, throne and Yehovah, kes and Yah. Therefore, this verse is also translated this way. Here's the ISV's translation. Because he said a fist has been raised in defiance against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will wage war against Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, in attacking Israel, Amalek has attacked the throne of the Lord. In response, the Lord will be at war against Amalek from generation to generation. Based on the pictures in this account, this makes much more sense. And so, in evaluating these verses, we must consider what came before them. The first seven verses of this chapter were about the water coming from the rock. At the end of that story, right in the sight of the elders, Moses brought water from the rock by striking it with the rod. The last verse then said, So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Immediately after that came the connecting words in Hebrew, Ve'yabo Amalek, or and came Amalek. The two stories are being tied together. And so that we know that this is certain, the naming of the altar, Yehovah Nissi, is actually being tied to the name of the place Masa. And both occurred in Rephidim. The two stories are not separate. 
they are connected. Masa is derived, as I explained last week, from the word nasa, which means test. The people tested the Lord, nasa, and asked whether he was among them or not. And the Lord was shown to be their banner, nisi, that he in fact was among them. Nasa and nisi are etymologically connected, and they in turn connect these two stories. So what are these verses telling us? I'll tell you after a short poetic break. The book is written and sealed with the final word, Amen. God has a plan which will surely come about. Be sure to refer to it time and time again, and you will be strengthened for the battle, no doubt. The Lord is my banner, exalted is he. He stands upon the high mountain watching over us, and he is the victor over even the greatest enemy. He is the one who prevailed even over death, our Lord Jesus. Surely from generation to generation our foes are defeated because of the lamb who to Calvary's tree was nailed. So marvelous is the story, it needs to again be repeated until the end of time, our Lord, our Christ, has prevailed. Our third thought is a wonderful picture. The picture that we're to see is once again that of Christ and his people. It is a war against the unregenerate or natural man and those who are regenerated by Christ or the spiritual man. The two are at rivals and they're at war with one another. In the previous passage, the people question whether the Lord was among them or not. This passage is given to show them that he is. It is a sign to the people, both to unbelievers to see and know, and to the believers for the strengthening of their faith. Amalek, or the unregenerate man, comes against Israel. But who do they attack? The weak and the tired. As always, those who are not grounded in their faith are the easiest prey. They are confused about the nature of God, they're confused about proper doctrine, and they're confused even about their relationship with God. Amalek comes to destroy them. His very name implies severing off the head from the body. They are those who are disconnected from the body, and they strive to disconnect others from it as well. There they are at Rephidim, or the place of rest and support, and yet they're trying to destroy the people of the Lord. It is the constant battle which Paul writes about in his letters. There is Christ who has saved us and given us rest, and there is the enemy who wants to draw us away from him. Think of the name Amalek, those who sever the head from the body, and listen to Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Amalek represents the false teachers, the heretics, and other unregenerate people who are constantly attacking the weakest of the flock. He is the natural man that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In order to counter this, Moses sends Joshua to engage Amalek in the battle. Joshua is a type of Christ, the captain of our salvation and the commander of the army. He is the one who leads his people into the spiritual battle in which we are engaged. But the battle isn't fought in the camp, is it? Rather, Moses told Joshua to go out to fight against Amalek. We don't get saved and then enclose ourselves, hopefully we don't, enclose ourselves behind walls with other believers. 
We are to go out and engage the enemy where he is. We are to take the fight outside of our camp to the camp of the devil where he is. Just as Jesus says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Gates are used for defense. They're not used for offense. Joshua went out to engage in battle and to overcome the foe. We are those who fight under the Lord, and we are to fight where the devil is. Paul writes to us concerning the spiritual battle in which we're engaged in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. It's 11 verses. It's a little long, but listen to this and think of this battle that's going on with Amalek and the battle which is going on with us. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Think of the rod being lifted up, the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. Remember, the battle went to the end of the day. He's speaking about fighting during the day of right now in our time before the sun sets. Stand therefore, he says, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith which, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The battle we face is no less real than the one that Joshua faced. However, it is a spiritual battle against the wiles of the devil as he constantly attacks from the rear, harming the weakest and destroying their faith. Jim and I talked about this yesterday when we were out in mission work. You know, we got some people that do a different type of mission work out there, and we see them on Saturday morning. And they told us what church they were from, and we had a discussion. They're Christians. They love the Lord, but their doctrine is poor. And I said, the ones that make me angry aren't them. They're just sheep. It's the people that are pastors in churches where they don't open the Bible, they don't properly handle it. And this is the type of battle that we're talking about, wringing off the head from the neck because there isn't a grounding in Scripture. That's, that's what's happening here. In the battle, Moses stands on the top of the hill with the rod of God in his hand. It's a picture again of Christ, the power of God, on top of the hill with Moses and Aaron and Hur. All of these principles are here and all of them picture the work of Christ. Moses, which means he who draws out, pictures Christ, the prophet of God. Aaron, whose name means very high, pictures Christ, our high priest. And Hur, whose name is derived from white and who descends from Judah, pictures Christ, the king. The rod of God, like in the previous passage, is the instrumental cause by which the battle is won. In Christian theology, the instrumental cause of salvation is faith alone in order to be justified. It is an entire dependence upon the work of Christ and nothing else. Moses' hand is the efficient cause. It is that which causes a motion to start or stop. Hence, only Moses could hold the rod, not Aaron, not Hur. The symbolism is that the hand of Moses belongs to the prophet. He's the one who receives the word of God and relays it to his people. In other words, it's a picture of the recording of the Bible. Christ's power is revealed in his Bible, which came through the hand of his prophets. 
However, Aaron and Hur are needed to strengthen Moses. A word without content is not a word. The word tells not only of the prophets, but also of the work of the priest and of the king. Their ministries support and uphold the word of the prophet. As I said, there's a reason for every action that's going on here. It is to the Bible that we look to see Christ and which we rely on for understanding our spiritual battle. Without that, the enemy gets the upper hand, just as Amalek or the natural man gets the upper hand on Israel when the rod is rested. In essence, it's, it's a picture which cries out these two words, doctrine matters. We cannot engage in the battle without having proper doctrine. It is not possible. And the stone that's placed under Moses, what does that represent? It is another important confirmation of the, mat the manner of doctrine. In defeating the foes, Paul, citing Isaiah 28, verse 16, says this in Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The stone is the support to keep from being defeated. It is right doctrine which says that faith in Jesus Christ is our righteousness. It is that faith in Jesus Christ is our justification, and it is that faith in Jesus Christ will win this battle. With the support in place, the words of the Bible which tell of the prophet, the priest, and the king, and what he did are sufficient to win this battle. And according to the passage, Moses' hands were steady until the going down of the sun. If you remember, there was that special word translated as steady, which is imuna. His hands remained faithfully steady throughout the long day of the battle, even to the end of the day. It is a picture of moral endurance. God establishes our lives in Christ, and with the Bible, his faithfully steady word, which tells us of Jesus, we have a duty entrusted to us to live by faith in that word. The very verse from the Old Testament which Paul cites concerning justification by faith is from Habakkuk chapter 2, and it uses the same word, imuna. He says here, behold the proud, his soul is not right in him, upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Paul quotes it along with these words in Romans chapter 1. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You see how important that one word imuna is. It explains everything that's going on in this passage. With the rod held high, with Moses' hands in the air, and with Aaron and Hur supporting them, it then says, so Joshua defeated Amalek with the edge of the sword. Jesus defeats the enemies with the sword of his mouth, which is the word of God. The picture is so absolutely marvelous that it's actually hard to believe. Every single word has been used to show us little pieces of the work of Christ in defeating the enemy and to show us that it is, in fact, the Bible that is being depicted here. We read the next words in the account. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book. All subsequent generations were to have this account, the very germ of the Bible itself, to understand how to defeat the foes of the people of the Lord, 
how to protect the weak, and how to rely on Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. It is personal. It is my banner. The promise is made. The Lord will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek. Jesus will utterly blot out the memory of the wicked and those who come to harm his people. The question in the last passage asked, is the Lord among us or not? The answer in this passage is, the Lord is my banner. He is with me and he is the one to whom I will look. He is the ensign on the hill. He is the rod in the hand. He is the captain of the army and the destroyer of our foes. He is the stone of help and support and the foundation on which our hope is based. He is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. He is Jesus. And with him as our head, we await our final deliverance from this war with Amalek, which still goes on today. Christ is still warring with those who would wring off the head from the body until the day when all things are finished. Until then, if you have any fear at all, just listen to the final verse of this chapter once again in your fears will melt away. Because his hand is against the throne of Yah, Yehovah will wage war against Amalek from generation to generation. In essence, the Lord is fighting for us because the enemy has attacked us, his very throne. To him, we are at his throne. And to make sure that we can make that claim, that we are in fact at the throne of the Lord, we can go to Revelation chapter 3 as a confirmation. Here Jesus says these words to us, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. When we call on Jesus, we overcome by his blood. And when that happens, we are granted the right to sit with Christ on his very throne. Paul tells us this truth in Ephesians chapter two. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit, past tense, together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Through the work of the Lord, we are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ. The deal is done and we have overcome. That is assuming, however, that you have actually called out to Jesus Christ. If you haven't, if you have failed to do that in your life, you are excluded from this promise. Instead of warring with you, he's going to war against you. But by a simple act of faith, you too can be joined to Christ and seated at the very throne of God. So let me tell you how. This is the story of the Bible. We're seeing it again and again and again, all building on the same story, that Jesus Christ is the answer to the human problem. And we are in a spiritual war. We're in a war against ourselves because sin reigns in us. And even if we don't want to exercise sin, it has captivity over us. That we're in bondage to sin. We are slaves to sin. And Jesus Christ came to remove us from that slavery. He came and he lived the law that you and I cannot live. And he did it without his own original sin because he didn't come from Adam through a father. He came from Adam only through a mother. And so his father is God. So without original sin and being born under the law, he lived perfectly under the law. And he did those things that we could not do perfectly. And then he gave his life up as an exchange for our sins. And all the Bible asks us to do is do exactly what we saw in this passage today. Simply trust in the power of God to look to it and not to ourselves in order to be saved. That's exactly what we're seeing here. Faith, faith. We are justified by faith and not by works. The just will live by faith. 
And that's what God asks us to do is to say, I know now that Jesus died for my sins and I want to exercise faith in that act and our sin will be nailed to the cross and he died and went into the grave, taking away our sin because we are in Christ and then he came out of the grave having no sin of his own. Death couldn't hold him. He was the perfect sinless son of God. He is the perfect sinless son of God. The, our sin is gone and now we are in Christ and we are free from the bondage of sin. 100% free from it. But if you haven't called on Christ, it is still infecting you and you are still in this battle. Please yield yourself today to Jesus Christ. Our closing verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 11. It's the 10th verse. It says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who stands as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. It's all tied up right there. The banner to the people, the resting place, Gentiles included, everything in that one verse right there. Unbelievable. What a word he has given us, how he can pack so much information into this Bible that we can search it out for the rest of our life and never come to the end of it. Unbelievable. Next week is Exodus 18. It's verses 1 through 12. It's not about a Hebrew like Joshua or Gideon. It's entitled Jethro, the priest of Midian. That'll be our 50th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And if an enemy is standing against you in battle, he can defeat them as well. So don't panic about that. Just follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today is called Jehovah Nissi, The Lord Is My Banner. Now Amalek came and fought in Rephidim with Israel, a war between good and evil, as the Bible does tell. And Moses said to Joshua as a sort of command, choose us some men and go out with Amalek fight. Tomorrow on the hill I will stand with the rod of God in my hand in plain sight. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek, their enemy to kill. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, we understand, Amalek prevailed while Israel was assailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took and put under him a stone, and he sat on it. But he was not there all alone. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other one. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek, as we know, and his people with the edge of the sword. The battle was an impressive show, won by Joshua for the people of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua for all future generations when they take a look, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, so shall it be. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. Yes, Jehovah Nissi is he. For he said, because the Lord is sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek always. From generation to generation, each that is born will fight against Amalek until the end of days. Surely the Lord is our banner, so to him let us look. Let us keep our eyes steadily fixed on Jesus. And let us discern right doctrine by attending to his book. It is the place where today he communicates with us. Let us not trust in the cunning wiles of man nor let us trust in any false word. Instead, let us do our utmost, the best that we can, to constantly trust Jesus alone, he, our saving Lord. Thank you, O God, for Jesus, the captain of our salvation, and thank you, O God, for your superior word. From it, we find in our souls a joyous elation. 
because in it we find Jesus, our glorious Lord. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this story. Thank you that the battle is won by simple faith in you. It's amazing. I, every time I think of what you have shown us in your word, what you have done for us in human history, Paul and I were talking about this morning. We, we, we can't even comprehend it. It is so absolutely marvelous to think that you would breathe the breath of life into man and then all the way through human history come out as a man born of the very people you created to bring us back to yourself. And everything that happens in the process is just simply astonishing. Thank you for that. And Lord, we want to praise you for it. We want to glorify you for it. And when we also want to petition you for it because you are the God of power and you are the God of miracles, we would pray for a miracle for Darla to take away her pain in this uh, affliction that she's suffering. Pray, pray for uh, Darlene and her mother, Arlena, who are still having troubles as she grows older and older and uh, it's more difficult for Darlene to take care of her mom. We would pray for them. We'd pray for Dina, who's traveling today, and anybody else that is uh, out there and uh, uh, streaming online or on YouTube that hears this prayer and says, I have a burden in me, that they can look to you and that they can be freed from that burden. We would pray for that. And if the burden is intended to continue, help them to understand why and to accept it as a part of your plan for each of us. Lord, thank you. Thank you again for the marvelous, just the marvelous majesty of what Jesus Christ did for us. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in his name. Amen. But you can see now why I was so broken-brained on 7 September. The amount of information. I'm not talking about the pictures. I'm talking about just the mechanical aspects of that sermon nearly killed me. And then I couldn't think because I was so tired. What is this picture? I went and looked at some things, and one guy had an idea about this, and somebody else had this kind of interesting thing. I didn't agree with it, but it opened up my mind to say, ah, now I'm understanding this. It's because it's all picturing something else. That's why these stories are given us. Who cares if there's a battle with Amalek unless it's showing us something else? What a great God. Wow. Uh, okay, so we get our uh, instruction from the Lord's Supper for the Lord's Supper, directly from the Bible, this wonderful gift that I've been talking about. And I'll never stop talking about. I'll never shut up, so if you ask me to shut up about this word, it ain't going to happen. But you, it'll be sooner day for me to carry a cell phone than it will be for me to stop telling you to read this word. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we get these precious instructions of the Lord's Supper. He wrote there, Paul wrote these words, for um, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he would have given thanks over it with these words Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth and he broke it and he said, take and eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me same manner he took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, brings, uh, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread 
or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, ah, I'm so thankful for these people that are here, that are willing to learn your word, and to study it, and to apply it to their lives. I'm so thankful. I feel so unworthy to even speak it. I always, you know, Lord, I speak it to you every Monday. Why have you allowed me this honor to type these sermons? I just don't understand it, but if you can use a guy like me, it shows how great a God you really are, how wonderful you are, how precious it is to be in Christ and to know that we're redeemed from the sins of the past and, and a part of your heavenly purposes. Thank you for that. Please send each person home safely today. Bring them back if it's their will to come next week, and uh, we'll be sure to do our best to uh, look into your word again next week wonderful story about Jethro, the priest of Midian. How marvelous. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, anticipate that. And should you come for each or any one of us in the week ahead, we'll just be sure to praise you for it. We just want to be with you. I know every person here feels the same. 
even so. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.